what is your hope of glory? Is it fleeting? Is it fragile? Is it fail-safe? Is it human? Is it heavenly? Is it something that's already in your possession, or is it still just out of reach? Is it tied to your career or your next project at work? Does your hope of glory, does it hinge on the success of others? For instance, maybe your kids at school or your team on the field or your party in the next election. Maybe it requires that your next video go viral, that your lottery tickets finally line up, that you buy the right stock or the right house in the right neighborhood. Maybe for you, glory is, it's worldwide. It's going to require a ton of effort. It's going to require a few lucky breaks along the way. Maybe for you, your hope of glory seems really unlikely. Maybe for you, glory is much smaller. It's more private. It's more attainable. Maybe it's something you think about all the time and it drives your every move. Maybe this is a brand new question for you. What is your hope of glory? The Apostle Paul had a hope of glory for the young church in Thessalonica. For Paul, this hope of glory didn't hang on a thread. It was sure. It was concrete. As confident as Paul was that the sun would rise the next morning, so too was he confident in his hope of glory. But from the vantage point of that young church in Thessalonica, their hope of glory seemed to be under attack. Maybe you can identify with that this morning. From the moment the church in Thessalonica was founded, which is recounted over in Acts chapter 17, this young church had faced opposition. So just within a few weeks of Paul's arrival into town, God started saving people just left and right. And it created such a hubbub in town that the townsfolk formed a mob. They, they ransacked one of the church members' homes, and they ran Paul and his compatriots out of town. And they didn't stop there. When they found out later that God had begun to work in the town next door, they gathered up their pitchforks, traveled 50 miles southeast to Berea, and did the same thing over again seeking to extinguish the flame of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, fast forward to the time of this letter, just a few years later, and it's clear that that opposition to the gospel still hasn't died down. So Paul is going to send them this letter that we're going to look at this morning. It's probably his second one in just a few short months. And in this letter, Paul is going to do two important things. First, He's going to straighten out all sorts of issues that they've gotten twisted um, along the way. And secondly, he's going to pray for them. And what I want us to do this morning is to look at one of those prayers. So if you would, turn with me in the Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at just verses 11 and 12 this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. You can find 2 Thessalonians in the back kind of uh, quarter of your Bible, well towards the end. You can see, down on this end. If you're using the, con 
the table of contents in the front of the Bible to help find your place, which is always a really useful thing to do. Then you'll find uh, five books that all start with T in the New Testament. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. And we're in Second Thessalonians. Looking at your Bibles, you can see that Paul is going to greet the Thessalonians in verses 1 and 2. Then he's going to thank God for them in verses 3 and 4. Then in verses 5 through 10, he's going to explain to to them that the day of Jesus' return is surely coming. And when Christ does, he will bring destruction on those who oppose the gospel, and he will vindicate those who have trusted in him. And then in verse 11, he's going to pray for them. So let's pick up there. If you would, read along with me as I read, starting in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was so good. Let's read it again. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to try to simplify these 62 words down to just 12 words, I would summarize Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians this way. May God work in and through you for Christ's glory and yours. May God work in and through you for Christ's glory and yours. That's my prayer for you this morning. May God work in and through you for Christ's glory and yours. To that end, there are three outcomes I've been praying for you as I've been preparing for this morning. These are things that I want you to know I want you to embrace, I want you to pursue, and I want you to pray for these things. And these things will kind of serve as the outline for my sermon this morning. And so I have been praying that holiness will come from your hardships. That holiness will come from your hardships. Secondly, I have been praying that your works will come from faith that your holiness will come from your hardships and that your works will come from your faith. And thirdly, that your glory will come from grace. That your glory will come from grace. How is it that holiness comes from hardship? Look at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Make you worthy of his calling. The Thessalonians are enduring great opposition. 
If you look across the page over at verse 4, Paul's going to talk about their steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the inflictions that you are enduring. They are under a great weight of suffering. But Paul's hope of glory, well, it's not diminished by these hardships in a way that it seems that the Thessalonians seem to have forgotten. It seems that for the Thessalonians, their sufferings have clouded their hope of glory. But Paul acknowledges their suffering, but he doesn't wallow in it. He's not overwhelmed by it. No, instead, with enduring hope in the work of God eternally and in God's work in their lives now, Paul rejoices that their steadfastness in affliction has given rise to new evidence of God's righteousness. Look down at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Paul here is able to see past the immediate threat that they're facing and onto the glorious conclusion. It's his job as their father in the faith to help them see with anticipation what's actually coming. So I, I love to read to my kids at night. And, and right now, we're in the middle of book two of the Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson. Delightful books. And because I've got some young readers in our home that are listening, and because sometimes they're a little sleepy as we're reading, they tend to miss stuff along the way. Especially like the subtle stuff like foreshadowing. So at times, as I'm reading, I will realize that the author has just put down this amazing Easter egg, and it's too good for them to miss. And then it becomes my job as their dad to point it out in the story. I'm not spoiling anything. I'm not ruining the ending. I'm helping them to enjoy the process of reading that the author has intended for them to enjoy along the way, even though at this point they're incapable of doing that without assistance. So I'm, I'm helping them see what's always been there, what was intended for them to see, that foreshadowing that points to what is to come. And in that moment, I'm also helping them not only to enjoy this story that we're currently reading, but I'm making them better readers so that whenever they pick up other books later, they know how to pick those things up and enjoy other stories as well. And so Paul is doing the same thing here for the Thessalonians. It's as if Paul is saying, guys, do you realize what this means? Do you get what all this points to? All this suffering and all of your perseverance, it's pointing to something marvelous. It's evidence that God's righteous judgment is to come. The wicked, the wicked all around you guys, they're, they're proving that they are worthy of his punishment. But your endurance is proving you to be worthy of the kingdom by his sanctifying power. This is great grace on display from the author of the story, God himself, through his reader, Paul, to his... The, these young children in the faith, the Thessalonians. Paul's hope for glory leads him not only 
leads him not to pray that their affliction will just blow over. Instead, he prays that it will be used by God for God's glory and for theirs. Paul encourages them that relief is coming, but maybe not in this lifetime. In verse 6, he will say, Since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief, verse 7, to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He anchors their hope in relief, not in the here and now, but in the hereafter. He points them towards the end of the story. Now, Paul has a category for praying for the end of suffering. In in fact, he's going to ask the Thessalonians to do just that in chapter 3, when he instructs them to pray for us, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. So, in, in the same way, Jesus instructs us that, that we can pray that we would be delivered from evil, right, in Matthew chapter 6. And, and so from this, what I want us to pick up is that, it, is that it sometimes is faithful to ask for immediate deliverance. That can be a faithful prayer on our, on our behalf, not only for ourselves but for others, to ask the Lord for immediate deliverance. Sometimes that's faithful. But it is always faithful to pray that the Lord would refine us until he delivers us. That he would refine us until he delivers us. Because every prayer for deliverance rests in his ultimate deliverance. And if God, in his goodwill, chooses to only answer those Matthew 6 prayers for deliver us from evil, if he only chooses to answer those on the last day, it will absolutely have been enough. It will absolutely have been good. And so Paul prays not that they would be rescued from their hardships, but that through their hardships, God may make you worthy of his calling, that he would make them fit appropriate, right-sized to the, to the calling, that they would be up to snuff, that they would be deserving of this. In this case, that they would be holy, holy and blameless because the one who has called them is holy and blameless. Paul is using the term calling here to refer to our salvation and, and not, our, not like our vocation. Right? He's, he's not talking about like our roles or our careers in, in life or ministry. Now, here Paul is referring to that invitation that God extends to all believers to turn and trust in Christ as their Savior. It's in that sequence of gracious things that God does when he saves someone. So we, we pick it up, for instance, in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, where Paul describes the sequence as, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there, so Paul uses five terms to describe the fullness of all the gracious work that God has done in eternity past and in the present and far into eternity future that he has done in salvation. And so then here in this prayer for the Thessalonians, 
Paul uses the single word calling to encapsulate all that God does when he saves his people. So, so what is Paul praying for? He is praying that God would make the believing Thessalonians worthy of their salvation. Worthy of their salvation. And we should step back and ask, who is worthy of such a thing? Who is worthy to be saved? We, we reminded one another in the song we sang earlier, right? When we sang, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? And just looking around at the room, just looking horizontally at all that humanity can offer, the resounding answer to that question that we sang earlier is no. No, none of us are worthy. None of us are able. None of us are whole. And praise God, that's not where the story ends. None of us, even in all of our worldwide collective strength, can defeat death. But there is one who can. We sang, the Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Church, what's the answer? He is. He is. Jesus is worthy. And why? Why is Jesus worthy to reverse the curse of sin and death? Well, because he lived the perfect life that we could not live but should have lived. And then he died a death for sin that he shouldn't have died, but that we should die. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and making a payment for sin on our behalf that we could never make on our own. And then he returned to heaven to prepare a place for us in a place that we could never get to on our own and we've just seen from our passage that he is coming back to right what's been wrong in a way that none of us have ever been able to do. Is he worthy, church family? He is. Amen. And so how can we be counted worthy of this calling? He's not saying here that they would earn it. He's not saying that they would pay God back for some sort of loan of grace he's given them. No, he's asking God to make them worthy. May our God make us worthy. This morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, let me remind you that in your own strength, you are not worthy. You are not worthy to enter heaven you are not worthy to be saved, and yet we have a gracious God who right now would call you to trust in him as, his own, as your only Lord and Savior, to stop trusting in your own strength, to stop looking to your own glory, to stop looking to anything in this world to be your hope of glory, and to turn your eyes on him and to have him be the author and the perfecter of your faith. If you've never trusted in Christ, I would encourage you right now, now is the time. Turn to him. 
find your hope of glory in Christ. And not because you've earned it, but because he has, he will make you worthy. If you have questions about that, I would love for you to find me after the service or or talk to someone that's sitting next to you. We would love to help you understand what it means to walk with Christ as your Lord and Savior. And believer, don't abandon your hope of glory when facing this kind of suffering. Remember, these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Instead, trust the Lord when he chooses to use suffering as the vehicle of your transformation, of your sanctification. Even when that vehicle is hard. Because it's true that not all paths of sanctification involve suffering. I mean, God is gracious to conform us into the likeness of his son through joyful, pleasing moments. I mean, just this morning, I have been encouraged in my faith by the songs that we've sung, by Abigail's testimony of God's grace in her life, by the sweet prayers of friends who have put their arm around me this morning to pray for me. And and none of those felt like sandpaper. And yet, they were used by God to, to make me into the likeness of his son, to make me holy. I pray that the same has been true of you. And praise God that he graciously sanctifies us without suffering. But at the same time, praise God that he sanctifies us through suffering. That our suffering isn't pointless. Yes, it is humbling. Yes, it is revealing. Yes, it is testing. It is a trial, but it's not pointless. And so, fellow Christian, Identify with our suffering servant. You are a child of the King of Kings. And as he sent his one and only son, our co-heir Christ, to suffer, so too you must suffer with Christ in order that you may be glorified in Christ. That's in Romans 8, verse 17. We must suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you want to be identified with the suffering servant, when he returns as the conqueror that we see in our passage here today, then identify now with him, even in suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that we run to suffering, that we're trying to accumulate as much suffering for ourselves as possible, but we also don't run constantly from suffering. We trust the mighty hand of God even as he uses suffering as the vehicle of our transformation. This is loving. It's a loving thing for God to do that, to to make us worthy of his calling, even by suffering. And it's a loving thing that Paul prays to that end for the Thessalonians. And so we should pray for that for one another. We should pray because we love one another, that we would embrace our suffering Savior in this life and in the next. And, and trust that that is, a, that is a loving prayer. Charlotte, Elliot, Silas, Nate, look up here at Dad. I love you. I love you very much. And I pray 
that God will make you worthy of his calling, even if that means suffering. Because I care far more about your holiness in heaven than I care about your earthly happiness. Do you understand, Dad? Okay. UBC, I love you very much. I love you very much. And I pray that God will make you worthy of his calling, even if that means suffering. Because I care far more about your heavenly holiness than your earthly happiness. And may we be a congregation that is filled with those kinds of prayers. May God, in his grace, grant us holiness from our hardships. May God in his grace grant us holiness from our hardships. But becoming worthy isn't something we only passively receive. There's no kind of bippity-boppity-boo transformation where we, one second we are uh, dressed in the rags of our sin and the next we're just dancing along in the, in the glass slippers of, of perfect righteousness. Instead, we're called to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which brings us to, to the next outcome of Paul's prayer. First, that holiness would come from your hardships. And now we see that he prays that their works would come from their faith. And that's my prayer for you. That your works would come from your faith. Let's pick up in the prayer back in verse 11. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. This is Paul's second request, and it's a twofold request. That God would fulfill their every resolve for good and that he would fulfill their every work of faith. Both of these are fulfilled by God's power. And so, once again, Paul reminds them of their need for God. Even our best intentions for good and our best efforts in faith, they don't measure up. They need to be filled up. Praise God that he is willing and able to do, to fill up what is lacking in our desires and our actions. That he, he wouldn't leave us to our own devices just to, just to watch us struggle and, and then come up short. How kind that he is, he is willing to give us far more abundantly than we could ask or think. And that not only is he willing, but he is able. He is able. It's not a tax upon his resources to fill up my little cup. And because God is willing and able to accomplish all these things by his power, then Paul knows that he can bring with great confidence these specific requests to him on behalf of the Thessalonians. And it's clear that Paul doesn't take this for granted. That he, as a child of God, can approach the throne of grace with confidence and bring his request to God is not a privilege that he neglects, particularly on the behalf of others. So in this short letter, Paul writes 1,120 words in English. I don't know what it is in Greek. And of those 1,120 words, 278 of them are dedicated to prayer. 
25% of this letter is ink spent thanking God, interceding to God, blessing the Thessalonians by God, or instructing them how to pray for him to God. Now, Paul didn't have to do that. Because if you think about it, if the only audience of our prayer is God, then there's no reason to record them here. Why waste the time and precious ink to record them here? Well, I think Paul's doing three things when he writes this prayer out for the Thessalonians. And the first is the most important. I think Paul is actually praying. He is actually lifting these very requests to God. Praise God that we have a God who hears these kinds of requests. But secondly, he's teaching them, the Thessalonians, how to pray. Whether corporately or individually, he's giving them the language that they need to bring their requests to God. And then he's also subtly, quietly exhorting them to strive toward the desired outcomes of this prayer. He's pushing them toward this end. So you may have noticed that when one of our associate pastors, Nick Roark, when he preaches, he always begins his sermon with the same prayer. Have you noticed that yet? Watch for it. It'll be coming in a couple weeks. It, it goes like this. Oh, Father, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your beautiful word. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. So by carefully preparing this prayer, Nick does the same things for us that Paul was doing for the Thessalonians. First, he's actually praying to God this very prayer, that God would grant us the grace to fulfill those desires for good. And Nick is teaching us how to pray, particularly as he repeats that prayer over time. And thirdly, he's quietly exhorting us to strive toward the desired outcomes of that prayer. What we know not, please teach us. It reminds us to be in that humble posture to learn. What we have not, please give us. Well, that reminds us to be in that humble posture to receive what we, what we clearly lack. What we are not, please make us. And besides sounding a whole lot like this prayer in 2 Thessalonians, it reminds us to be in, a, in the humble position to change. And we should desire those things. We should strive for those things and we should trust the Lord to be the initiator of those things in our life. Now, not every prayer should be written or even spoken out loud. And we should be very careful that we don't get the prioritization of those audiences mixed up when we pray. It, it is sinful to consider the ears of the humans as more important than the ears of the divine. But we should also never underestimate the value of praying out loud together 
or, or of putting careful thought into our prayers, or even just of growing in prayer, becoming a better prayer. So yesterday, I was up here working on my sermon, and a friend dropped by to pick something up, and he stepped into the office just to check on me. And I was explaining to him that I was a little stuck in my prep, and I was kind of lamenting the process, and, and we chatted for a minute or two just about what I was thinking, and he, he had a tip or two, but what was, was incredibly helpful was before he stepped out of my office, he just paused and prayed for me for two minutes, just out loud. He could have done that on the drive. He could have done that in his own heart, but he paused, put his arm around me, and prayed to our Heavenly Father for this sermon. And I cannot tell you how incredibly encouraging that was. To hear a brother on my behalf, on your behalf, bring his request to God for this sermon. And if this sermon is in any way an encouragement to you, then you have been a beneficiary of that prayer and of countless others I've heard about from the body this week. So may we, by God's grace, be a church that's marked by prayer, a church that prays, that prays humbly, that prays individually, that prays corporately, faithfully, scripturally, regularly, continually, Paul tells them that he is always praying for them in this way. And and that should be challenging to us. Challenging to us individually, challenging to us corporately. We should pray as Paul does. And, And one of the ways that Paul prays is for both the inner and the outer workings of faith in the Thessalonians. So that's what he's doing in this twin prayer for fulfillment. First, he prays for their inner self to be filled up with the power of God when he says, fulfill every resolve for good. And then he's going to pray for their outer workings of faith in their lives, when he says, and fulfill every good work of faith. So, fulfill every resolve for good. Other translations will say every desire for good. Paul is praying that the Thessalonians would would consciously choose to want what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise, that they would desire those things, that that this resolve for good would be multifaceted, that it would shape everything about what they do and who they are, that it would include desires to, to be good, and, and to know good, and, and to think good, and to speak good, and ultimately to do good. How's that working for you? In what ways do you need to resolve for good this week? Maybe that's something you could discuss with folks over lunch today. Maybe even use those categories. Be good, know good. Think good, speak good, do good. And and then sketch out some ways that you can pray about that this week. Or or, or pick up the member directory. Flip to the church covenant that's there in the inside cover. And and meditate on that this week because it's filled with things that we have committed to one another to do for and with one another, to do good to one another. All, and all those spring from those New Testament commands of, to one another. And so may God fill us with desires for good. And then fulfill every resolve for good. 
And so then I pray that he would fulfill your every work of faith by his power. I pray that those inner desires will result in works of righteousness, that you will do good. It's not enough that you have one or the other, just those inner desires for good or the outer works for good. They, they have to be tied together like they are in this prayer. So in Ephesians 2, we learn that without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we cannot save ourselves by our own works. It's only by grace through faith that we are saved. But once we are saved, our salvation produces good works that come from our faith. So our salvation can't be a product of works, but our good works must be a product of our salvation. And so James would warn us that our faith that doesn't produce works, it's dead. And so what he's saying is that you can have this inner desire, but if that inner desire that no one else can know about doesn't produce outer change, well, then we have reason to question whether or not it's true. True saving faith produces good works. And so you should ask yourself, is there, a, is there a disconnect between those two in your life? Do you find that maybe your inner monologue is, is filled with all sorts of desires for good, but that no one around you would ever know that because it doesn't ever produce change? Or, or maybe you're, you're constantly doing good and everyone around you can see that, but you know that inside that those desires all spring from selfish gain and not because you desire the good one or the, his good works. At worst, at, at best, those, that disconnect, it's hypocritical and, and, and dangerous. But at worst, it's self-deceiving and damnable. We should really examine that in our own lives. We should take seriously that disconnect. We should confess that to one another. If you find that in your heart today, confess that to one another. Meditate on the gospel and, and lift up this prayer from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to the Lord often. It will, it will turn your heart towards the grace that we so desperately need. Which brings us to this final outcome of Paul's prayer and, and our final outcome of our time together this morning. And that is that your glory will come from grace. The glory will come from grace. Verse 12 says, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why has Paul prayed all of this? And, and why would God ever desire to answer these requests? Well, here in verse 12, we find his purpose. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, here in verse 12, we find our purpose. So that, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. The most important reason why God would make us worthy of his calling or would fulfill our resolve and actions for good is to magnify the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ's name is, is synonymous with the totality of his being. It sums up all his character, all his attributes. 
It represents all that he's accomplished. It is who he is. And remember, Christ is worthy. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power. And he has been worthy of that long before he gave creation eyes to see his worthiness or or minds to comprehend his glory or, or lips to praise his majesty. Long before he did any of that, he was worthy. And long after that has all passed away, he will be worthy. He was and he is and he always will be glorious. But right now, from our vantage point, from that human perspective, the glory of the name of the Lord might, might seem clouded. Clearly, in the passage we can see that the, the opponents of the Thessalonians, they don't put much stock in the name of Jesus. And we see that in our world today. We see that in our own hearts today. But one day, the Lord Jesus will sweep away the clouds and reveal his worth to all humanity. And, and how will he reveal his glory? Well, verses 7 and 8 tell us that his arrival will be terrifying. He will arrive with an army of angels, with flaming fire, with vengeance on those who have rebelled against his righteous reign. And this demonstration of his righteous might, it will be glorious. The name of Jesus Christ will be glorified. But it's not just in what he's able to do to those who oppose him, that makes him glorious. No, it's what he has done for those who have believed in his name that will make him even more glorious. So Paul is praying that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in you, it says in verse 12. In you, Thessalonians, in you who have believed in the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When that day comes, and all of Christ's enemies are laid low, who will still be standing? These Thessalonian believers will still be standing. And all who have trusted in the name of Jesus Christ to save them, just like these Thessalonian believers, they too will be standing. In this lifetime, it looked like they, the Thessalonians, were going to be ground up by their opponents. Instead, They stand as evidence of God's righteousness, of God's ability to save those who are far from him, to cause them to persevere, to to live forever with their king. Not only is God able to save, which is glorious, but he is willing to save, and that is glorious. He is willing to show mercy and grace. And not only on that last day, Will they stand as evidence of that grace? But even now, as they endure afflictions and persecutions, in that moment, they stand as testaments to God's power to change people, to make them new. As they show themselves to be models of good works, their their opponents are put to shame. Their opponents can't say anything. In the same way, your patience, your endurance in hardship, your faith in the midst of that, your trusting in God to work all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose, that faith is a testament to God's saving power even now. So trust in God's grace. Trust in his grace so that Christ may be glorified in you. 
Christ will be glorified because his followers, as they stand on that day, as they're left standing when no one else should be able to stand, they will turn and they will marvel at their Savior. Look at verse 10. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. They, Christ will be glorified in his saints, that he has preserved them, and they will turn and glorify him. They will marvel at him. They will wonder at his grace and his goodness and his power and his might. That too is something we can do now. We can turn and marvel. We don't need to wait until that last day till we hear the trump resound so that then we turn and marvel at him. No, even now, in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we bring to him, in the books that we read, in the time we spend in study in his word, in the ways that we encourage one another with the marvelous nature of the gospel, in those ways we, we marvel, we worship, we glorify our Savior. And it's in him that we find our own hope of glory so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope of glory is found only in grace. Only in grace. That we could turn and trust in a Savior who would not only dismiss our sins, but wrap us in his holiness and bring us into his fold to call us co-heirs with Christ and allow us to reign with him eternally. That is what he is offering us by his matchless grace. By his matchless grace. In our next song that we're going to sing here in just a moment, we're going to sing that this is all we have. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And so we look to him here and now and in the hereafter, already looking toward that great day when he will come back and make all things new, that he will rescue us and bring us to, ourselves, to himself. And so the temptation all along the way is going to be to find our hope of glory somewhere else, in something else, in something we can attain in our own strength. Set those aside. Place your hope of glory only in grace. May your, may your glory be found only in grace, according to the goodness of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you find it in him. Let me pray for us. God, you are abounding in grace. And we marvel that we can bring these requests to you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't seek to do this in our own strength, either as a church or as a nation or as individuals, as a family. Instead, Lord Jesus, that we would recognize our great need for your grace. And that by your grace, we pray that you would make us worthy of your kingdom, worthy of our calling to salvation. 
that you would fulfill in us every desire for good and every work that comes from faith, that you would do that by your matchless power. And we pray that in all that we do, that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified to the end of time. In his name we pray, amen.